This is the KPMG Current Conversations podcast. In this episode, is board member insights to navigating uncharted waters. Welcome to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast, brought to you by the KPMG Global Energy Institute. Current Conversations is a podcast series featuring in-depth conversations with the nation's top energy executives and luminaries to explore today's most pressing issues and emerging challenges affecting our industry. On August 31st, 2020, Regina Mayer, KPMG Global and U.S. Head of Energy, connected with Barbara Duganier, who sits on the boards of multiple public, private, and not-for-profit entities. Her current boards include Noble Energy, MRC Global, Texas Pacific Land Corporation, and McDermott, among several others. Ms. Duganier brings a broad perspective and rare insight to the conversation. She explains why she's optimistic about the future of an oversupplied industry with pricing wars and an unprecedented number of energy bankruptcies, and what will be required to allow the industry to rise again. So Barbara, thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure to have you. So some of our listeners may not be familiar with your background, uh, so let me summarize. It's a terrific background. You spent several decades in in key leadership roles with Arthur Anderson as the global CFO, Accenture as the chief strategy officer of the outsourcing business. And now in your next chapter, you are serving on multiple boards, both uh, public, private, and not-for-profit entities. Your current boards include Noble Energy, MRC Global, Texas Pacific Land Corporation, McDermott, and West Monroe Partners, to just name a few. And you also serve as the chairman of the NACD Tri-Cities Texas chapter, having previously served as the organization's president. Ah, wow. You are officially the busiest person in the industry. How do you juggle all of it, and how have you coped during COVID? Well, first of all, good morning, Regina, and um, thanks for having me on your podcast. It's great. It's going to be great to catch up with you and certainly talk about some of these interesting times. I think you've made me tired Absolutely. going through your list there. <laughs> I'm tired looking at it. How do you do it? Yeah, no, I, I think everyone I know, <laughs> I'm sure you know as well, is extremely busy uh, in this new world order. And, and the management and boards of my board companies have certainly been and continue to be very focused and busy on ensuring the safety of our workforce, first and foremost, during the pandemic. You know, I've, I've been very blessed and thankful for my health and the health of my loved ones uh, during this pandemic. And certainly my heart goes out to all those around the world that have lost their lives uh, to COVID-19. It's interesting because we've now had over six months, um, sometimes it seems like a lot longer, uh, to adjust to the myriad of challenges presented by the pandemic. And in my experience, that adjustment has certainly been an extreme test of you know, resilience, uh, the metal of corporate cultures, the adaptability of fundamental business models, particularly to be future ready uh, within this new reality. And I think there's so many lessons learned that we're beginning to understand from all this, but a strong lens still needs to be put on the various elements, positive and challenged, that will remain after the pandemic. Um, it's also a time when our own resilience and adaptability is tested in how we live and work, engage with others, and stay focused. 
to your point about being very busy, I mean, my boards have all met more frequently for some of them, at least weekly, for a while to deal with the numerous issues created by the pandemic. Yeah, it's uh, each company, uh, and that obviously includes the not-for-profit uh, companies that I serve on, have really had unique challenges, but there's, there's a couple things that are common. Uh, all have required the board to be extra engaged, uh, certainly extra time, extra focus, certainly to act as a sounding board in what is very much unchartered territory, um, to resist stepping in as management, frankly, uh, in the crisis, to act nimbly and to avoid overwhelming management who are extremely busy uh, with multiple urgent requests. Uh, since February, my board meetings have largely been virtual, and that's a big adjustment, right, to engage effectively through the technologies that are out there that we're all becoming very familiar with, Teams, Zoom, uh, et cetera. But, you know, it's, it's unique as a director not to be able to re read the body language in the room or engage in activities such as, you know, board dinners with members of management, which allows the board right. to you know, more accessible and, and read the pulse of the organization. I have largely worked from home, which I sort of adjusted to when I transitioned from Accenture to career or board service uh, a number of years ago. But frankly, engaging in the virtual world as a board member <laughs> has required me to acquire new skills and, and be more adaptable. One silver lining has been more time with my daughter uh, as she transitioned in the spring from college life on campus to a semester at home online. She's now returned to the university, uh, albeit finishing her last semester, mostly online, but I really enjoyed the extra time with her that would not have occurred without the pandemic. I, I also realized, though, just how challenging it's been for parents with younger children that are less self-sufficient to be productive at work and effective in helping their children learn in this virtual environment. This is really a key issue for productivity in the workforce and goes across all industries, not just energy. And, you know, I think we're yet to see what the negative impacts of that will be. So in a nutshell, very yeah. busy, lots to do and very engaged. <laughs> You're right, though, that there's some silver linings of what is a, a terrible time. I've enjoyed the time with my children as well, and my college-age daughter was home with her roommate and my 11-year-old son, and we played Wii Sports Resort, rock band, and the bonding in that time. You'll never get that back. So I've, I've just learned to try to count my blessings. Um, so 2020 has been a challenging year for the oil and gas industry because not only are we dealing with COVID-19, but we also had a major loss in fossil fuel demand coupled with a lack of supply constraint that sent crude prices just through the floor. Fortunately, the prices have rebounded somewhat. And six months in, you know, WTI has been relatively stable for seven weeks straight, which we're all heaving a big sigh of relief. But they're still clearly not where we were in January with the highs that we had. On your boards, what was fascinating to me is you have a front row seat to the entire value chain, right, from upstream downstream and services. So share with us your view on how the industry overall is weathering the storm and the actions and tactics across the different segments. How are they the same? How are they different? You know, it's been very tough, right, across the sectors of energy, including services that, frankly, was already suffering from financial constraints and 
downward pressures on pricing. Um, there's no doubt that it's been, in the 40 years I've had in energy, one of the most difficult periods I've seen, um, particularly given the speed and the severity of the demand destruction across the globe. So we've all seen ups and downs, but this was pretty unique in terms of, you know, how quickly it actually occurred and then the confluence and the events you mentioned. Um, you know, it's fair, as I look across the companies, that the individual facts and circumstances matter in how the energy companies across the sectors are coping. But I think we're all very aware of some of the key themes that have unfolded, particularly in the E&P uh, industry and what, you know, COVID-19 and then the Saudi-Russian price war has meant to uncertainty, um, particularly around, you know, global demand, oversupply, negative impact on the terminal value of energy companies. Within that broad, broader picture, um, Certainly, as you, you've seen, I know better than anybody, a laser focus around financial discipline, uh, generation of free cash flow, return on capital, reduced leverage, have just frankly been pervasive and created an about face from a story we weren't hearing that long ago, frankly, focused on growth over returns and outspending cash flow when prices acted favorably. Um, you know, all of, all of us have witnessed how capital markets have been increasingly selective concerning where, where they'll meaningfully invest. Uh, witnessed the re- recent removal from the Dow of ExxonMobil, one of the longest surviving stocks in the Dow, and frankly, the significant rise of environmental, social, and governance-focused funds. Um, strong balance sheets are key, valued, and the markets have rewarded delevering companies have done, which is extremely tough to do in these down markets. Uh, During the crisis, I've seen liquidity being number one, uh, focused to weather the storm, and some have frankly been less prepared for that and part of an unprecedented number of energy bankruptcies. Uh, Key also is the focus on scale, uh, durability, cost structure, uh, created a view toward consolidation opportunities in the industry, constant scenario planning uh, across the range of possibilities, and a careful consideration by management and boards of all uh, available strategic options. So those are all really interesting dynamics, Barbara, that you pointed out, uh, and and that the market is rewarding those companies that were delevered and have access to liquidity and have strong balance sheets. Are you seeing the potential for more consolidation and M&A? Because, frankly, I've been surprised that we haven't seen more of it yet. Yeah, I certainly think as companies consider um, the benefits of scale, that there are opportunities, and a lot of factors obviously need to be balanced in this market. Uh, in order to determine if that makes the most sense, uh, given other <laughs> scenarios that are out there. But um, I would suspect that we'll see more consolidation in the space, not the least of which relates to the benefits for scale. And I think some of the things that we need to talk about in terms of investments and where they'll need to be placed in uh, in the future of energy. And do you think investors are still interested in this sector, or do you, to your points about uh, ESG questions and um, the overall attractiveness of the sector, are you seeing more capital 
flee the sector, or are you still bullish that we'll get the access to capital that we need to succeed? Well, I mean, I think, you know, all you have to do is look at the, the percentage, uh, small percentage of investment in energy and the representation it now has in the S&P to know that a lot of investors have flown out of the energy space. I think it's going to take some time to obviously attract investment into the space. Um, and one of the, the interesting areas will be, you know, how much time will it take for all those that we talked about in terms of, you know, the ability to be able to focus on returns, focus on capital discipline, focus on strong balance sheets. You know, how long does it take to convince the market um, that that, in fact, is happening and it's sustainable? But I think the other really key element that we'll talk about is uh, the, you know, the public sentiment, the investor sentiment, the emerging workforce sentiment about the uh, energy transition specifically and where the investing public actually wants to put their funds. Obviously, technology has taken a lot of that, that excess capital, but when they think it's appropriate to come back into energy because of some of the progress they see being made. Well, and yeah, and so just to summarize, because I think you, given where we are today, there have been some, some very interesting moves, ExxonMobil being taken out of the Dow Jones Industrial Average and energy being the, the, the tiniest sector making up the, the S&P, even below utilities and real estate. So that is the environment that we're facing. But you mentioned the energy transition, and that was one of the hottest topics as we started 2020 with the the cadence that came out of Davos and a lot of energy, pun intended, you know, around around climate change. So what are your thoughts on the energy transition itself? Does it continue in its importance or has it taken a back burner given COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting topic for sure. And there's a lot of, uh, lot being published and discussed on it in a lot of different perspectives. I guess, you know, in my opinion, the focus on climate-related impacts, uh, the energy transition, which it's interesting, Regina, I've heard that recently described as greening the grid and getting everyone on the grid. Um, and I think that that um, is really here to stay. And in so many instances, I think, has really been accelerated by the pandemic and related impacts. Um, there, there's some interesting statistics to think about. For example, uh, governments, you know, representing over one half of the global GDP have either made the commitment to attain net zero emission status by 2050 or have stated their intention to do so. And of course, energy companies, as you mentioned, you know, they're experiencing the negative sentiment of the public and shareholders, other stakeholders, and realizing they really have to begin to act meaningfully to change the perception of investing in energy as Stakeholders are increasingly demanding, demanding action for a low-carbon future. Um, you know, you look at the European majors, how they've really been leading there, spending $1 billion to $3 billion a year in renewables and over 50% of their CapEx on low-carbon strategies, including gas. Um, I think the announcement by BP that we all saw, uh, you know, cutting its production by 40% by 2030 and increasing investment in renewables tenfold really tell you something um, about the future of how 
companies that can invest the capital are seeing the marketplace and seeing energy transitions. And you know that the net zero emissions by 2050 really get the headline. But frankly, when you're thinking about it on a company by company basis, the impact on the portfolio of energy assets to any one company is just staggering to think about in terms of meeting those actions around capital allocation. Great comments, because I think one of the words that's really important in energy transition is the word transition. And we sometimes miss the fact that lots of changes have to be made each year, you know, each decade to achieve those net zero targets. So what are your recommendations or thoughts, Barbara, about how traditional energy companies should prepare? Yeah, so it's, it's just a fascinating topic, and I'm sure, like you, I try to get my hands on as much as I can in terms of the points of view that are out for all of us to absorb uh, either on the climate or on the timeline or on how it actually happens, the governmental component of it. But it's kind of on a personal note. I've also uh, been informed by my daughter, who's representative of the emerging workforce, which I think is a really important component to this. And she happens to be majoring in sustainability studies where she studied different oh, aspects wow. of climate science. So I, mm-hmm. I sort of get that as well. But some of the things that have really struck me during this whole sort of journey um, in thinking about it is really the energy industry clearly needs to be in front and center in creating the innovation that will create a successful energy transition to cleaner cleaner energy. It, it also hits me that, you know, the largest, energy players, because you were asking about, you know, what can every energy company do, but a lot of this is really going to be in the hands of the largest energy players leading in those innovations because of their scale, their ability to redirect meaningful capital and invest and, you know, pull in people and resources and technology to make that a reality. I also think that the transition can't just be solved within the energy industry. And I want to be a little thought-provoking here in the fact that I really think this is going to take thoughtful partnerships with the technology industry, uh, which has significant capital, has attracted some of the world's best minds, and the support from the capital markets to invest in enabling physical assets to perform in a new energy paradigm. I think by you know energy and technology working together, and, of course, working with governments to enact smart policies, but also when you think, Regina, about energy access, which I mentioned, you know, greening the grid and energy access, um, I've followed and read um, Robert Bryce, you know, the energy journalist and author. He talks about 3.3 billion people live on less than 1,000 kilowatts per hour per year, which is less electricity than it takes to power an old refrigerator. <laughs> It really becomes a symbiotic relationship, I think, with technology to access more of the world's population with both power uh, and technology. So it sort of works well, if you will, for both industries. Um, and I think, you know, as board members, certainly as members of management, we, we just can't be limited by thinking about why things can't work based on the paradigms we know today, but more importantly to ask the what-if questions that are open-ended and fueled with out-of-the-box thinking. And on the latter, I'm particularly struck by the capital required in 
use of water resources to do something like, for example, produce hydrogen as a meaningful power source that I heard discussed recently on a Tudor Pickering Close of Business podcast. You know, the thing that struck me is it said if hydrogen would become 20% of the world's energy supply, it would require 16 times the water consumed in the U.S. today, and it would use 1.5 times the energy supply. <laughs> so it's just not going to work within today's technology um, or for electrification, you know, looking at the short supply of minerals, you know, copper, lithium, uh, et cetera. So I think we need the employment of brilliant minds, technology innovation, and the motivation created by aggressive metrics and bold actions to possibly make alternative energy sources such as hydrogen a meaningful part of the world's energy sources. Now, traditional energy companies, even if they don't have the big capital that the super majors have behind them, I think have to be prepared to tell their energy transition story and more broadly their ESG um, story to optimize on actions within their portfolio, things they can influence, um, not the least of which is acting responsibly, reducing flaring, uh, focusing on lower fugitive emissions, carbon capture, water management, alternative fuels, you name it, respecting and giving back to communities where they operate, contributing meaningful progress by adopting the right performance measures. And obviously all producers will face this pressure um, to come forward with their lower carbon plan and increased disclosure of their progress. It will definitely take a village to solve this whole challenge. And you're right, the the ecosystem of energy, technology, and government coming together will be critical. I like Robert Bryce's uh, statistics, too. And, you know, he, he says your average Pakistani consumes what your average Texas refrigerator consumes in a given year. So energy access is incredibly important. Let's pivot now, though, and talk about your role with NACD in the Texas Tri-Cities chapter. You were the president. You're now the chairman. I'm interested in hearing more about what have been some of the biggest challenges facing board members during the pandemic and the subsequent economic challenges. Um, what are you hearing from them, and what have you found to be maybe most useful in your own role to, to prepare and respond? Yeah, it's a great question, and I have really appreciated um, you know, the association with uh, NECD overall, because I think director education and access to director networks is, is really critical, you know, anytime, but certainly in a time in which you're in uncharted territories and dealing with a new reality. It really does take a village of thought, and there's a lot in there in terms of being able to get uh, collaborative networks, which can help your thinking in many ways. So, you know, some of the traditional challenges have frankly been just adjusting to the reality of needing to meet more frequently, um, you know, getting committees to do a lot of the interim work outside of the typical agendas one might think about for for board year, but also using these collaborative tools and enable effective engagement, um, you know, requires things, for example, making sure everyone gets a voice, which sometimes can be extremely difficult in the virtual world, certainly in the physical world as well, but the virtual world, because you can't read the, you know, the body language and cues and so forth, it, you need to make particular efforts 
uh, to make it, make sure that all the views around the table are are, are realized and, and heard. And I know that we've really scratched the surface on this, but you know it's going to be this virtual part of our agenda is, is going to be here to stay in some form or fashion. I, I recently responded to a survey that NACD put out, and they were capped, and I don't have the results of that yet, Regina, but um, you know, it was basically asking, you know, in in after the pandemic, after we're able to go back to physical, how much of your board agenda and committee agendas will really continue to be done in a virtual uh, environment as opposed to in a physical environment? And I think probably traveling, you know, five hours for a three-hour meeting is <laughs> no longer in the cards. I mean, I think people are going right. to really rethink right. that. Um, and one of the things like NACD, obviously it's, you know, programming is where the rubber hits the road in terms of value to members, but the NACD had to kind of pivot overnight to virtual programming, you know, like locally putting on over 30 programs about important topics, partnering with sponsors. I'll give KPMG a, a plug here, Regina, but certainly sponsors like KPMG to be, you know, bring relevant content to members. But we, we, one thing we find is the networking element is very challenged. So one of the things we've done, again, trying to think outside the box, is launch a series called Table for Five uh, that members sign up for, engage in around a key topic, you know, those Chatham House rules. And, but it creates a, net, a new network for most people and maybe for people who never participated physically before because now they can participate more virtually. Um, to leverage right. this dialogue, continue to discuss these key topics. So, again, it's kind of looking at your basic value proposition and how can you continue to serve your constituents to put it into the new market reality, if you will. I agree. I think there's many things that will stay that, that we will keep from uh, this experience. And less business travel. I did a survey on a on a webcast that I have been doing and. I asked the question of when will people get on an airplane again, and fully 50% said it would not be until um, either the Christmas holidays or next summer. So, um, and some some said never. I've got I've got my RV and I'm ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I think uh, and the and the virtual working. I think we've learned a lot. Although you know I know people are zoomed out as we say, and we're keen to get back together. But I think some element of virtual will stay. Any advice that you would offer the the folks that are on boards that are listening? Yeah, sure. And I mean, I think it uh, again. You know, it's just whole comment I made earlier about lessons learned. I think there's so many rich lessons learned. And sometimes when you're working so hard and kind of on a treadmill to try to get past the crisis, it's kind of hard to uh, to debrief and think about what they are. But making sure we don't really lose sight of the real learnings from the pandemic, um, strengthening and improving the board companies for the next unexpected risk, disruptive risk, unknown risk, uh, to focus on the elements that have made us stronger during it. Um, what this has really told us, I think, about corporate cultures, the resilience of management teams and things like succession plans, and frankly, the resilience of core business models and the company's differentiation amongst competitors, some of which did uh, very well and others struggled to do. 
And, you know, the real question for boards is what new disruptive risk or black swans that are brewing in our world under the surface <laughs> should we consider that may have a significant impact to companies or a global economy? And just, you know, not to get political, but as directors, we also really need to think about, you know, how corporations can effectively push back more on governments about ensuring a plan to handle risk such as the pandemic, which many say was known, uh, you know, prior to all of it being known to all of us. So I think it's just continuing to look at all the aspects, all the strategic aspects, how well did the company do, how resilient is it for the next thing that will come, and what do we keep the same, change, um, and, you know, really, really invent um, out of this that uh, is going to make us all very strong uh, in the future. Absolutely. So at the start of our conversation, we did a quick overview of your career and many accomplishments. So I, I learned something in doing my research. You were a competitive weightlifter and bodybuilder. In all the years I've known you, I was not aware of your passion for working out and that experience. I have to hear more about that. Oh, my gosh, Regina. Where did you pull that from? <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. I sort of, I had sure, but you might have to clean up your, your uh, bio online. <laughs> no, no, no. It's really funny because, you know, one of the funny things is I remember when I um, uh, was interviewed for and then was um, awarded my first board position, which was at Buckeye Partners, and we sold the company at the end of 2019, uh, I remember, you know, Clark Smith, who was the CEO, called me, and he called me to invite me onto the board. He said that, you know, in the due diligence, we really just had something that came up, and we wanted to make sure we understood it. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. What is that? And he said, well, were you really on the wide world of sports? And uh, I, I chuckled. I started, I started laughing. And I said, well, no, not, not the wide world of sports, but certainly the Cleveland Plain Dealer, where I grew up had a feature on, on bodybuilding and, and powerlifting. <laughs> but, no, I think, you know, it has, been, it has been something that's been part of my life. I think as we get older, it certainly gets tougher uh, for all of us, but certainly even more important, right, for overall well-being. And I think it's one of the things just thinking, you know, challenging in this environment that we have today is being able to, you know, get off our seats and be able to, uh, to get around enough because it is a different sort of world. Uh, that's been created with social distancing and so forth. You know, I've been challenged by the pandemic because I, I really like to work out in a gym, but I've done the best I can to, you know, adapt with videos. And, of course, having my daughter around, who's a physical fitness person also, she <laughs> certainly kept me on my toes. Um, we did have the opportunity <laughs> <laughs> recently to um, to take a driving vacation as a family in Utah and the vigorous hikes and bikes were certainly a nice break. So I think um, it's been fun, and uh, I do think as you think about, you know, personal wellness, it's certainly something that makes sense if you can to incorporate into uh, as a stress relief, if nothing else. Well, it was a fun fact that I learned, and um, <laughs> I, I will – I have a, even a, another higher level of respect uh, for you, Barbara. But another aspect of your career which intrigues me, selfishly speaking, is your transition from professional services to board service. And I've actually found that many 
of the senior executives that I've interviewed in these podcast series did start in some form of professional services environment. What were some of the key things that you learned in your career that helped you succeed in board service? And then what words of wisdom might you offer others who are interested in following your career path? Well, I mean, the transition really has been great for me. It's been uh, about seven years now, and it certainly came at the right time uh, in my career journey. I think it's, you know, really important to think ahead in your career, whether you're in industry, professional services, um, and decide what makes the most sense from a uh, professional and personal standpoint and where you can be the most fulfilled um, and certainly have the most impact. And, you know, as a professional service uh, person who work largely with energy companies, I thought about my background, and obviously uh, I knew from a financial perspective I could qualify as a financial expert just given my background as, you know, spent about a decade in audit, uh, but also as a CFO, uh, certainly was involved very, very much in key strategies, particularly within Accenture, but also very heavy industry. And, you know, just looking at those factors, uh, I thought I could apply those in a different framework, which was in board service. Um, it, it's important when people are thinking about board service, which obviously a lot more people are, are thinking about as they transition in their careers. Um, it's, it's something that you take very seriously, obviously, and understand the why of when, why you want to do it. Why do you want to become a, a board director? And when I began that journey, I spoke to my mentors and friends who are still my mentors and friends today. Uh, who are board members to understand their perspectives and the pros and cons, so kind of eyes wide open, Regina. Um, second is to be clear about what value proposition you individually have and where you think you can make the most impact, whether that's in a particular industry, size of company, and then, you know, clearly doing your homework as to the companies you might consider and developing those opportunities. I think networking is extremely important in that. And and it's interesting, Regina, when I was first looking at serving on boards, which began about two years before I got my first board, there was a lot less opportunity, I think, for those who had not served on boards before, which is kind of counterintuitive, right? Everybody who served on a board hadn't served on one until they served on their first one. But there was a different mindset, really, I think, particularly for non-CEOs or non-public company CFOs. And it's really changed, as a matter of fact, in 2019, the statistic that came out from NACD was that 77% of new board members on companies in the Russell 3000 index had never sat on a public company board before. So it's really a different mindset, if you will in terms of getting the talent that you seek in an organization and how specific people are about whether you had to have served on a board before. So I think in thinking about, you know, board service, be aware, read a lot, network, um, and one near and dear to my heart is be involved in director education. I've certainly benefited from that, what I've learned from others um, and how they're dealing with the toughest challenges. You know, in that regard, NACD has launched one of the biggest strategic initiatives of their history, which is the certification program for new directors, which has gone virtual (laughs) as well. But, you know, it's, again, to make sure that new directors are positioned for board service, 
with a common understanding of some of the key elements that are out there. I actually had a unique opportunity to help write the exam, um, as did others in NACD service. But, you know, it's just, again, an element of being prepared, being thoughtful, being mindful, and understanding where you bring value or could bring value to the companies you wish to serve on the board of. I remember some of the early conversations when you were just beginning your transition, and it's amazing how far you've come. But your point about it was a different world, I love that statistic. 77% in 2019 had never served on a board before. It does show how much things have changed from seven years ago when you started your journey, Barbara, to where we are today. That's really interesting. You know, to put diversity around the table as well, which is obviously important for many aspects, that um, obviously that factor has considerably changed uh, how people think about, you know, candidates for board service as well. So, no, I agree with you. It was pretty, pretty stunning when I looked at that and said, is that really true? But it really is. And I think it, um, it's, you know, it's hopeful for those that are seeking board service. It is for sure, um, and 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 diversity from all angles, um, which is which is exciting, exciting too. So I know these are tough times, but we do know they won't last forever. What positive or uplifting message would you leave with our listeners? Yeah, so I I know if you've been around energy for a while, which I know you have, and I mentioned I entered the workforce and. 1979 and started working with energy companies then, we've all seen various cycles and know that, you know, frankly, it's not for the faint of heart. Often it feels like a big roller coaster ride or a, 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 a bull ride, if you will, <laughs> a rocking bull with extreme highs and extreme lows. But even though we've had these big ups and downs before, I do, I do think the industry is un, undergoing fundamental change. With that is always the opportunity uh, to create value. There is a change in public and stakeholder sentiment and what's expected from the industry uh, related returns. But also, I think the challenge will be, you know, being able to engage the emerging workforce, focus on improvement of the world around us. And it will take, I think the, the uplifting point is it will take a lot of innovation, a lot of thinking outside the box, uh, a lot of not being, you know, in, uh, if you will, just bridled in in history, but thinking more about the future. With that, that's exciting and challenging. Certainly, you know, I think as directors have eyes wide open, think outside the box, uh, and embrace innovation, they can saddle up for the next chapter and help an industry that's absolutely essential to the world uh, and growing in importance uh, to the world, but one which will have to overcome some... Uh, some challenges in the in in the near term and think about its transition to the future. Definitely lots of opportunities and challenges ahead of us, but I agree it's exciting because we are pivotal to the world and and can be such a big factor in positive change. Thank you so much for joining me, Barbara. You were uplifting and inspirational and I'm so grateful for your time. It was a true privilege to host you. Well, thanks, Regina. I've truly enjoyed it talking to you, and it's it's really been great to engage on these really important topics and have have some fun in the meantime. So, take care of yourself, and thanks again for the opportunity. 
Thank you for listening to our podcast episode on Board Member Insights to Navigating Uncharted Waters. A transcript of this episode is now available on the KPMG Global Energy Institute at www.kpmgglobalenergyinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast to be notified of new episodes.